Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Good morning, everyone. My name is Andy. It's a real pleasure to have you all here, and um, it's, a, it's a real honour and privilege to share with you. And thank you for saying the Lord's Prayer with me. Um, it's one of my favourite congregational activities to do. It's probably about maybe second next to communion, which we'll do later. So I'm having a ripper morning so far. And maybe, as we said it, take time to reflect on how, when was the first time you heard that? When was the memories connected to it? Was it with your family? Perhaps a certain Sunday school teacher? Maybe it was today, this morning? For me, um, I was forged in the, the fires, or was I think it's the jungle, of um, an all-boys Catholic school. I survived. And so due to that, mass after mass, uh, the Lord's Prayer is imprinted. It's burned. I'm very thankful for that. So I could do it eyes closed, upside down, however you like, underwater. Today we're going we're gonna to touch points on it. But the main, the main focal point is the first few lines of the prayer that Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean throughout history? What does it mean for us today? What does it mean for the people of God yesterday, today and tomorrow? And to start, there actually was a time where we didn't actually need to say that, that your kingdom come on earth, because they were one at a point in Eden, in creation, when God dwelt in fullness with his creation, with his people, and we dwelt in fullness with him. A beautiful thing. And as we know, it wasn't to last. We decided to take matters into our own hands and decide how we wanted to run creation. And through that fall, the, the curse of sin and death brings us to where we are today, surrounded by, by pain, by suffering, by hurt, sort of uncreation as, as the intention of what God had for us and for his world slowly starts to fragment. Thankfully, though, that story doesn't end there. He doesn't leave us in this uncreational mess that we've made for ourselves. God has, and this word might conjure up some memories or some, some good, some about a project. Who, I know some students are probably in that thinking project, oh, or like those, oh, group projects, no, not those. Or those projects at work that was slated, oh, it's just going to be a couple of months and two years later you're still doing the same project. But God does have a project and he wants to renew and restore this cursed creation. He wants to bridge the gap between heaven and earth as we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want your fullness. And we're going to go for a bit of a, a rapid tour of some of the, the Old Testament and the ways that he's established this project for us. We're going to start at Exodus with the Israelites chosen. They are God's people. He's plucked them. I'm going to, to show my glory to this people, and he takes them from Egypt into a promised land. 
It's a bit of, a, bit of an intermission of 40 years, but during that time, he, he's preparing his people to be God's people. And we'll see in, uh, in Exodus and in Joshua two, two ways that he's preparing his people. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Big moment for the Israelites. Another big moment in Joshua as they're heading into the promised land. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. Among you, sorry. And these, and we'll, we'll revisit the, the idea of this later on as we get on. But, and as they get into the promised land, they establish themselves as God's people. And, and in that time before, um, God gave them an almost a system, a tent, and in the, in the very center of it, uh, what we call the Ark of the Covenant, a beautiful relic that is central to the, uh, the Israelites' Um, it's a physical reminder of who they are, of God's people, the very presence of God dwelling in this beautiful box, which was once just a bunch of acacia wood and lumps of precious metal. There was very specific instructions that God gave, must be this certain wide, deep length. I was looking at furniture the other day, and those dimensions matter. And if... And if George Lucas would have you believe, it has the power to melt your face. <laughs> I actually watched that the other day. I was thinking about it, and I'm like, that is such a good piece of cinematography. <sighs> and as we see, the uh, biblical scholars, Craig Bartholomew and Matthew Goheen, um, lay it out in what, what Israel is meant to be. They're called to be a display people, a showcase or a showcase nation to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. As the Israelites obey God, they, sorry, as the Israelites obey God, they will demonstrate what life under God's reign looks like. The nations will be able to catch a glimpse of God's plan for all peoples. The whole of Israel's experience will reflect God's character and God's original creational intention. I love that phrase, original creational intention for human life. So God's project almost becomes through the ark and through the tabernacle and through the people around it. And if you read in the Old Testament, they're, they're all set in different parts around that central point. It's almost like a, like a conservation, like a preservation of, of God's kingdom on earth to model what it means to be in full communion with him. And it stays this way for some time as we journey through the Israel's history of kings of exile, of return, of the temple, and establish themselves in Jerusalem, you know, of Zion, of God's city. This is the focal point of God's people, of God's presence on earth. We reach a certain point in the narrative, though. We come across a certain young 14-year-old lady called Mary. And as we know the Christmas story, um, God visits her, or an angel of God visits her and, and, and says, this is what's going to happen. The power of the Spirit will come over you and you will conceive a child. It's known as some people the Immaculate Conception, or as the young people sometimes say, it's a Mac. Did you hear Mary's having a child? Yeah, bro, that's a Mac. It's a Mac, bro. 
And when confronted with this, it's actually pretty daunting for, for anyone to hear, okay, this is what's going to happen, and your son will be the saviour of mankind. Big, big, big visitation. But how does he respond? In a similar fashion to what we prayed this morning. Let it be as you've said, Lord. Let your will be done. And all of a sudden the wheels on this conservation, this creation project, start to turn ever so slowly. And this preservation of God's presence here on earth is moving into a stage of advancement. As was said yesterday, not yesterday, last week by Robin, Aslan is on the move. And Mary literally models the Ark of the Covenant. She is physically, literally carrying the presence of God inside of her. As she mirrors and she points towards a future where God's spirit will pour amongst all flesh and we carry the very presence of God. She's physically, just like an ark, a a physical reminder or a symbol of what God's presence is going to do. And that project begins to gather steam as, as Jesus grows and he begins his ministry here on earth. And we, and we know the stories. We see the incredible works and displays of power, of healing, of raising the dead, of deliverance, incredible things, water turning to wine, pointing beyond this uncreation that we find ourselves in into something potentially greater, beyond what we see. Perhaps a spiritual reality, a cosmic reality, a project. And these physical manifestations of of his power breaking out, it's touching ourselves, it's touching our bodies, our hearts, our minds. It shows that, that we matter, our bodies matter. This creation matters. And all amongst this, including not just Jesus, but, but John the Baptist, talk of a coming kingdom. It's coming near. In fact, the, the conversation before Jesus' death with Pilate is, is centred around, you're a king? Where's your kingdom? What is this place you talk of? And, and Christ reveals a little more to the most unlikely of audiences. And amongst this, we see John the Baptist, who did herald the coming of God's kingdom and the coming of, of Jesus, the one, the Lamb of God. And, and he finds himself in prison, which is not a fun place to be. Be definitely uh, not on my bucket list to be in a first century Palestinian prison. And as like any of us, he begins to be a bit discouraged, loses sight, he, he, he's enveloped in this small space and that's all he can see and and the reality of what he's into sets in. And in Matthew, he sends his disciples and when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, all these amazing displays of God's power here on earth breaking out, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? This is the same person baptising in the Jordan Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think this is what John needed to hear. 
John understands, right, the kingdom is coming. It's near. It's happening. It's breaking out right now. This is the one we're looking for. The occurrences, they're pointing to a coming kingdom. And now with any creational project or group project or school project or work project, a crucifixion would be enough to throw a spanner in the works. Uh, that would pretty much be, yep, that, that's done, that project's over. Oh, we give it our best, guys, but then the breaks. However, as we know, that is the catalyst for the culmination of this project. It's the ultimate masterstroke of his renewal, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, one of my favourite parts of Scripture is, is in the garden with Mary Magdalene approaching the tomb in the morning, and, and she meets a gardener, and, and we know the story, and we have this conversation, like, the body's gone, she is dismayed, and, and amongst it, um, Jesus just calls her name Mary, and it's like scales from her eyes. She recognises it, but it's not the same Jesus. It's a different Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus. He is the one who came, went to the cross and not just paid the sacrifice for this, for this curse we find ourselves in, the uncreation that, that dwells with us. He's overcome it. He has victory over that curse. And he's here in that physical risen sun. That term, God's creational intention for humankind is fully realized. It meets its absolute climax in him, the kingdom is broken out here on earth. And it's just this beautiful picture of, of, of Christ who is our king. It's a cosmic king. It's not just here on earth, here on heaven. He has all power and all authority. In Jesus, we have uncreation undone. And it happens in a garden, no less, where the original curse broke out. It's undone in a garden. All the curses in this project, the preservation, the advancement, all lead up to this very moment. And N.T. Wright puts us in the shoes of Thomas, who is putting his hands through the wounds of Christ for the first time, who is, who is doubtful. And with that, Thomas takes a deep breath and brings history and faith together in a rush. My Lord, he says, and my God, that is not an anti-historical statement. The Lord in question is precisely the one who is the climax of Israel's history and the launch of a new history, like Mary carrying the presence of God of a new covenant between man and God. Once you grasp the resurrection, you see that Israel's history is full of partial and preparatory analogies for this moment. As we skip ahead in the narrative into Pentecost, we see a church growing. The project is in full swing now, full steam ahead. We're moving from this display nation, a showcase people, into almost delegates of a kingdom that lies beyond this reality, like, like heaven nationals being chosen and sent out, full of Holy Spirit, that illuminates to others of this world a greater reality, a better reality, a future that we can put our hope in. 
And we find ourselves now today as the church, entrusted with this very same project. Hooray, group project, everyone. And it's a bit daunting, this idea of, of, of heralding a coming cosmic king. It seems a bit out of reach for, for little old me. But there actually is a very simple step that we can take into this project in its fullness. Now, I'm going to have a little pop quiz because this is a group project now. Now, as we talked about Jesus and John the Baptist heralding a new kingdom, there's something that they say before that as the kingdom of God is coming near. Would anyone have a guess of what that, what that is? What was that? She's got it in one. Repent for the kingdom of God is coming near. Now, Britt used this word a few weeks ago, so she said, President, it's not a sexy word. It's not a fun word. But it's paramount for what we're called to do as part of God's kingdom. It's the echo of the command that God gives to the Israelites as they cross over into the promised land, as they come out of Egypt and begin to become God's people that idea of consecration, a preparedness to see God move, to become holy like the one who is holy. And the Psalms give us beautiful rhythms of repentance. Psalm 51 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. He knows it all. You're not going to scare him or offend him when you come to him as you are. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, like what Christ was doing here on earth in his ministry. Repentance is, as we know, is a turning away, turning away from and towards God. It's actually turning away from all this uncreation around us and turning to a God who longs. He actually wants to make you holy. He isn't just sitting there, repentance isn't just as, oh, yep, come for your slap on the wrist, and off you go. He showed us that by the cross, that he wants to make us holy. It's a shifting of priorities from our own pet projects that we have, which are good things, but then we align it with this cosmic reality that God has shown us. It's the hallowed be your name in the prayer. God, you are Lord. I come to you to be healed, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be made holy because you're the only one who can. He yearns to consecrate you so he can use you. And when we view repentance like this, it's not just to get out of jail free card. Like I said, it's not off you go, you can go past go and collect your $200. The viewpoint changes. We walk into repentance, but we can also walk out of repentance. We're really good as a church to focus on what we're saved from and also what we're saved into. But it would be a disservice if we didn't start the conversation of what are we saved for? Now, Revelation, weird book, last book. Give it a, give it a read. And it, it's, it's written in the style of an apocalyptic writing, which is like 
unveiling, peering behind the curtain of how things really are, a reality, perhaps a cosmic or spiritual reality. But it gives us a glimpse of what's to come, of what God's ultimate end of his project, of when heaven and earth finally reunite. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, just like in Eden. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was on the thr- seat on the throne said, I am making everything new. Complete renewal of creation. Wouldn't that be a sight? to see the tears wiped away. That's the end game for the project. And we carry this very conclusion with us, that victory that Jesus secured for us. And we can see this break out through the world today, through the mire of uncreation that surrounds us, through the pain, through the hurt. It's like we sung this morning, we're not without it. It's here and it's, and it's real. And I'm not here to downplay that at all. But this is why we seek revival, why we seek renewal. Revival is simply an awakening to this reality that there is a kingdom, that there is a reality that one day all things will be made new and we will experience God in fullness. And that seems possible in those moments when heaven and earth, the veil is thin. Those thin moments. We live in this now, but not yet. When God has come, the kingdom has been announced, but not in its fullness. We still cry and we still hurt and mourn. And with creation, we groan and yearn for more. So what part do we play then if we're amongst it all? It can, it can seem a little bit hopeless. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn to my mate N.T. Wright and he encourages that we actually do have a part to play right now, today. And the point of the resurrection, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the present bodily life is not valueless because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. Quick break. If, if Jesus was just here to save us, then, then why, did he, why did he deliver us from from pain, from hurt, from disease, from suffering, from delivering us from evil. What was the point of those miraculous displays? Because it matters. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, group projects, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbour as yourself, will last into God's future. I don't mean to be corny here, but as, as uh, Russell Crowe says in Gladiator, what we do in, in this earth echoes in eternity. It lasts. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. The little things that we do in the everyday, the hope that we carry, and can give people. It's like was mentioned before, the church was full of the Holy Spirit and illuminating people to this reality. Ah, oh, I get it. 
There's more to life. Now, as you know, my wife, Hannah, she, you may not know or not, she's a dance teacher. She teaches us every morning during worship. I'd like to think that we're her uh, really you know, special class, this whole church. And she's got a lot of work to do, I think. But she, she persists. Thank you, Hannah. And she's been dance teaching for a very long time. Um, and you know, I get to hear all the great stories about it. And um, one, of the, one of the things that she's doing currently is that she, she does do a lot of private lessons, and it's mostly, mostly uh, kids who want to brush up on their skills or have a solo coming up for, for their exams or whatnot. But um, there is one that she does through the NDIS, and it's uh, a young woman who, um, her, well, while, while her mother was carrying her, had, a, had an accident, so she was born with, a, with an ABI. And um, so, but she loves to dance. And so they decided, let's, let's do some, some one-on-one dance, dance lessons through, through the scheme because it covers it, and we'll go for it. And, and Hannah gets to do it. It's pretty fun. They, it's, it's quite repetitive. And, and I remember in the early days, Hannah was saying, oh, we seem to do the same things, and, and she seems to like it, and it seems to be fun, but I don't know if I'm doing anything. I feel like, I feel like we're just going through the motions, and I don't know if the parents expect me to, to teach her anything. I hope I'm doing the right thing. And I just had a sense to say, Hannah, is there joy in, in just the joy of dancing, of moving and using your body? Yeah. That's all there is, isn't it? Why else would you dance? Just for the simple joy of it. And it gives, and it gives someone here on earth dignity and beauty, signs of this coming kingdom where there will be no more tears. And one day... This young lady will experience it in full. Be able to dance with all her might. Do you see it? A future where every tear is wiped. I've got to wipe my own first. <laughs> where there's no more crying or hurt or pain. When we have a heart towards Christ, he in turn shares his heart for creation. Um, Thank you, Catherine, because Jesus, he has grief for his creation. And he invites us into that. It's okay to cry out. And we want to see things restored and renewed as it once was. And if you come, simply come before him to be consecrated, to be forgiven, to be set apart, he'll fill you with that heart, with that spirit, You can carry his presence. And if you just simply come, then you're declared fit for service. doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what your abilities are, how many degrees you have or not have. He doesn't care about that stuff. It's okay. If you come, you are fit for service. Because God is in the business of renewing his creation. And the last time I checked, we're a part of it. We are creation. We are his creation to be renewed and restored today. Echoes of his kingdom that's to come. Like the ark that was once just bunches of wood and gold and metals, it was fashioned into something beautiful that held God's presence. 
So bring your unformed chaos, the uncreation that, 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 that marks us and mires us, and come to him to be fashioned into something that can carry his presence because he longs for it. He wants to use you. And as I conclude, I'd like to, to get the band up and, and enter some time of worship. I'm going to close up. He ties it all together into right now. You really need to read Surprised by Hope. Most of these quotes have come from this book, and I strongly recommend that you read this. But Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from heaven to earth, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is about. And what it means to, to, to bring the life of heaven to earth and to, to, to have it spread is, is like the echo of, of the creational mandate that Adam and Eve was. Now go and multiply, shepherd and steward this creation that I have. And further down the track, it echoes Jesus' commission to go to the ends of the earth. All power and authority are mine. Proclaim my kingdom. Bring it here on earth as it is in heaven. We do have a part to play and we do have a job to do. And all it takes is simply to come as you are before God because he longs to use you. And I invite you, I know it's, it's not a fun thing to talk about, but, but I invite you to consider this, this, this rhythm of repentance and consecration and watch as he prepares you for the amazing things he'll do among us. 